This week, Enemy of the World. The Doctor's evil double plans to rule the world with volcanoes. Who are you? You mean you don't know? No, why should I? Well, you went to such a great deal of trouble to save us. Ah, here we are. Thank you, Jimmy. Do you know how to use those things? Oh, don't worry. The doctor will fix you up just fine. Oh, you're a doctor? Well, not of any medical significance. Doctor of law? Philosophy? Which law? Whose philosophies, eh? Oh, I see. You're determined to be mysterious. Eh? Um, doctor of science? Septic spray, that should be all right. A doctor of divinity, then. You'll run out of doctors in a minute. You're listening to Oi Spaceman, a Doctor Who love story. A nerdy podcast hosted by a husband and wife team who take a loving but critical look at all things in Whoville. We're sex positive, queer friendly, and not afraid to speak our minds. Warning, not in language, spoilers, a general disregard of all things Stephen Moffat and other adult content may lie within. Here, look, do you want to do something useful? Oh, yes, please. Well, sit down and write out the main news. First course interrupted by bomb explosion. Second course affected by earthquakes. Third course ruined by interference in the kitchen. I'm going out for a walk. It'll probably rain. He doesn't like me. It isn't you. He's the same with everyone. Even Salamander. With volcanoes, it sounds like uh, Inferno, which we'll be covering very soon, although not really volcanoes, or uh, the ending of uh, the one right before... Oh, the ending of The Dominators as volcanoes, which we watched. And that leads to the beginning of the Mind Robber, which has volcanoes. So you're just going to keep listing volcanoes. There's a volcano in Pompeii. Far as Pompeii, sure. There's another one. Mm-hmm. Lots of volcanoes. Lots of volcanoes. And Doctor Who. We might and... call it a volcano. No. And in James Bond. Oh yes, in James Bond. Very James Bond archetype. Is it sad that I think of the the Incredibles now and the 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 volcano layer? The Incredibles is the more uh, current reference. Yes. Although, you realize that as of like November of last year, uh, the Incredibles is 10 years old. No. Yes. Well, welcome to the Oi Spaceman podcast. I'm Shayna. I'm Daniel. This is episode 36 and we are talking about the enemy of the world. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. I'm, as always, happy to be here as well. You know. Did, did, did you know that of all of the Patrick Troughton serials, only one does not begin with the word the, and this is not one of them. Okay, I'm sure that's significant in some way. Yeah. <laughs> uh Anyway, anyway, um, today we're going to be talking about Enemy of the World, the Enemy of the World, actually, mm-hmm. uh, which, which is uh, from season five, and includes a fantastic double performance from Troughton as both the Doctor and his coincident doppelganger, evil mastermind, Salamander. Yeah, no, um, this is a lost episode for a long time, and it was rediscovered. Uh, in 2013 and re-released. Um, wow. Unfortunately, I bought the DVD and I knew this when I bought the DVD because I just wanted to watch it with you and, and do it for the show. Mm-hmm. Um, I was waiting until maybe they put out a special edition DVD because there are no special features. None. Um, so unfortunately, I, I mean, I would kind of recommend, I mean, 
it's great to get to have the episode and get to watch it. Um, yes. It looks phenomenal on DVD. Um, but they did a great job. Um, this is also one of the first stories that went for the 625 line format, whereas the older ones we were looking at, which looked, you know, a lot fuzzier, a lot grainier, those were in the old 405 line standard, like the actual TV standard, the number of lines on the screen. Right. So that's one reason why it looks better. Okay. Shana has no gives a shit about Nope. That. Nope. I know that they shot outside some. And they did quite a bit. And uh, they had a helicopter. They had a helicopter, which um, would have, I, I looked, I did some research while we were watching, would have been a relatively new commercially available piece of equipment. Sure. Um, so, like... Well, helicopters were this huge, um, basically the Vietnam War kind of made mm-hmm. the, the helicopter happen as a thing, because, mm-hmm. you know... I think it was Bell Helicopter or something like that. There was a company that just produced helicopters for Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And so many of them were destroyed in Vietnam because they were not ideally suited for that you know, yeah. kind of fighting. Yeah. Um, but it basically made the helicopter a thing. But a helicopter as a representation of like, ooh, in the future, you're going to have a helicopter. Yeah. Like... It, it's, Where's my helicopter? I know. Why can't I have a helicopter? Where's my helicopter? Where is my hovercraft? Where are my variety of other transportation devices that they said I would have? I actually think, don't they mention the year 2015 in this episode at one point? This episode takes place in the year 2018. 18, that's what it was. So, you know, in three years, guys, we got to watch we're gonna out. We're going to have helicopters and we're all going to wear skin-tight jumpsuits. Skin-tight um, latex looking jumpsuits yeah, rubber latex rubber and all the girls the are going to have big flouncy bobs but um or I, actually I, pixie cuts i approve of this future yes i approve of this future as well um you know just a side note before we actually talk about the episode uh, this is another episode that had me ooing and awing over costume design because it is classic 1960s vision of the future mod. It's that kind of retro futurism. Yeah. You know, what people in 1967, mm-hmm. 1968 mm-hmm. thought the year 2018 was going to look like. Yeah. So if if you are into that kind of retro futurism of the atomic age, you know the 60s, like th- this episode visually um, and tonally in a lot of ways hit a lot of just straight up fun points for me. Yeah, no, there's a lot that's fun in this episode. Um, it's it's a it really stands out in season five. Mm-hmm. It's the only story in season five that is not a base under siege story, which we talked about that last week when we talked about mm-hmm. the moon base. Um, by the way, we're recording this just a few days later, so we're still getting over those colds we were talking about. Before. Yeah, so um, so we're we're time traveling a bit in terms of the podcast. We're getting way ahead, actually. So oh, I'm proud of us. Good. Yeah. Yay. I don't know what. Anyway, so, <laughs> uh, my own ignorance of my own podcast is uh, pretty astounding, folks. Uh, so, just to, you know, talk about the episode, um, we got that yeah, general thoughts. wonderful general- one-line summary uh, uh, that, you know, there is a, essentially the doctor meets a, a doppelganger who tries to take over the world with volcanoes. Which is a fine way to summarize it in a sentence, but I think you lose the fact that it, this is a James Bond spy political 
thriller. Like it, it's it's Doctor Who taking on an entire genre in this story arc, and I think it does it really well. Well, it's kind of simultaneously making fun of the genre, yes, and uh, really playing it up and and doing a, a, a full version of it. In a way that, like, you know, we think of kind of modern satire, you know, starting mm-hmm. with, like, Shaun of the Dead is this... Yeah. Um, it's Where a zombie Shaun, movie. Yeah, it's a it's great also, zombie movie, but it also makes fun of zombie movies. And that's, you know, we think of that as a fairly new idea. But, yeah, you know, it's but not it really, really a new idea, but, yeah. you know, the the um, the execution, I think, of, like, the Edgar yeah. Wright films kind of brings it to another level. Um, mm-hmm. Here, you can read it as kind of straight, you know... I think the reason it's a parody of spy movies in some degree is because they didn't have the budget to really do James Bond, so they had to do like low budget James Bond, and well, it comes across as a slightly humorous in places, like okay. with <laughs> keeping a guy prisoner in a corridor. Yeah. Oh my god. This is yeah. not the greatest example of prisons uh, in unusual locations in Doctor Who. Well, but I love that they talk about it. It becomes part of the conversation of, like, why are you keeping him in the hallway? Well, it was the closest thing we could think of. And the guards, like... It's it's the easiest place we could keep him. Like, mm -hmm. you don't have a a jail in in Mm -hmm. this compound, but... Not not in Salamander's compound. It would would be too far away or something. But, I mean, they, they kind of... Kind of wash over a lot of these things with the, well... It makes sense to us. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, just accept it and we'll move on. But I kind of, I, I liked that in some ways because it's it's kind of when you have the mumbo jumbo science talk to kind of just keep the plot moving. Right. I, I kind of felt like, all right, this dude's being guarded in a hallway. Um, it looks really funny. It's It's comedic, but it's also... Offers all these opportunities um, for disaster uh, in some ways. I don't know. I, I think that this, like, I was really surprised at how much I enjoyed watching this and the fact that. Yeah, even you were though, the one, like, pushing us to watch this faster. Yeah, you know, I really liked normally, this. I'm um, like, hey, you want to sit down and watch episode three of the Moonbase? And you're like, and, all right. <laughs> and part of that is you have the doctor. Um, and his companions, but then, and we will start yeah. going through this. Well, you have a huge list of characters involved that I feel like you really get to know all of them, and two of them are kick-ass women, and one of those kick-ass women is black. And this is, oh this my is, god, how refreshing that is. This is one of the few, I think, classic Who episodes, certainly from this era, that actually easily passes the Bechdel test. Oh, yeah. And... So, uh, I think... Enough to end all and be all of these no, kinds of conversations. Right. But, you know. but I, I think that there are a lot of inspiring side characters in this. And as I've mentioned many times on this podcast before, that's what makes Doctor Who for me a lot of the time, is it's not about the Doctor. The Doctor, this whole time, is just kind of doubting what he should do. And he's kind of like, you know, I need evidence. I need proof. I need, you know, help me. Um... And you have all these other characters that are really embedded in the world and trying to help him. Um, and it's through them that we really uncover the plot and an understanding of the world because they're trying to show the Doctor um, what's going on. Well, um, so let's move on. Let's let's kind of... Yeah. I actually... I, wanted, I structured this a little weirdly just because... 
there are so many characters, and I think if we just kind of talk about each of these characters, we will have a full conversation about the episode. Mm-hmm. So let's just start off and talk about the characters. Um, first of all, most importantly... Our companions or the Doctor? Well, Troughton and Salamander. Or right. The second Doctor and Salamander. Kind of talking about them mm-hmm. together, I think, is worthwhile, because this is a dual role. It was written to be a dual role. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're one kind of bit of... Um, coincidence is that the doctor happens to look like this guy who's going to be a you know a mexican dictator in the future and he happens to land the tardis you know 20 feet away from people trying to kill that guy so um you know but once you accept that little bit of business i think the rest of it follows pretty straightforwardly from there yeah Um, and and what do you think of both the second doctor in this story Mm -hmm. and salamander as a character in and of himself I want to talk about Salamander first, because sure. he could easily have become an overhyped caricature of any dictator, Yeah, you know? Um, but instead, I think you get, in the writing, a really interesting view of a man who believes he's doing the right thing, um, but even though... Everybody else pretty much agrees what he thinks is the right thing is pretty evil. Um, but he does so by being clever well, and he's manipulative. Well, lust for power. But what's interesting yeah. is that in his lust for power, I mean, we're assuming that people have seen the episode before, mm-hmm. the, uh, mm-hmm. before they listen to our episode. So yeah. we're going to give away some plot details here. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, he definitely has a lust for power. And he's definitely taking advantage of people and he's killing people and doing um, all these horrible things. But he's also like feeding the world in the process. So Yeah. And I mean, he's wantonly killing lots of people um to kind of get political power in order to be able to do what he wants to do. But it also includes feeding the world. Right. Um And, and I think so you and I see, think if you look at it politically, yeah. you know, kind of in a real politique, you know, geopolitical stance, well That's not entirely unrealistic. It, not and, and like you know, it's sort of like and I mean in a, in our last episode I think we talked you mentioned Doctor Manhattan and you know talking about mm-hmm. Watchmen talking about Ozymandias you know? yeah exactly like you know the idea of well by killing a bunch of people I've managed to you know unify humanity mm-hmm. you know well you can talk about how realistic that is and all that well, sort of thing but... and you keep going back to the, this kind of benevolent patriarch. Um, so we find out that Salamander literally has an underground base of, I think, all white and blondish scientists. Very Aryan scientists. Very Aryan yes. scientists who he has locked up and told that there has been a huge nuclear war on the surface and it's not safe for them to go out. And they have been underground for five years. Yeah. And he goes down and he is treated like a savior because he brings them food and right. he takes care of them and it's really well done in showing oh they see him as a savior and even the first time somebody comes down that's not him they immediately start to shun her for a minute because they're like oh you're not salamander we only know salamander right um and you actually get, and I think this is one of the reasons I appreciate this episode so much, is you actually get Salamander trying to tell these people, 
don't you get it? I'm trying to do this for you. I want to save you. You know, you are the people. Like, you really get that paternal, like, I, I know better. I know what's good for you feeling mm. from Salamander. Even though he's really evil and just kills people at the drop of a hat and, you know, all that kind of jazz. Um, so when we get to the doctor who is trying uh, to imitate Salamander, I think you see him piecing out this kind of, who is this man? What is his morality? Does he have a sense of morality? Mm -hmm. um, because the whole time he's not, he's not convinced until he has solid proof. And we'll talk a little bit more when we get to talk about Giles. Kent, um, yeah, we'll who is get to him pretty shortly, Salamander's yeah. big uh, opposition. Um, but the Doctor is able to have some really wonderful moments. And some of them are also really comedic. Like, as he finds out two minutes before he's supposed to impersonate Salamander that he's supposed to, and his head of security walks in, and you have Patrick Troughton deliver in this, like, Al Pacino, uh, Scarface, you, you Mexican accent. You can't not think of Al Pacino and Scarface. It's yeah. Say hello to my little friend. Yeah, you really can. Um, Except it's why hello, Bruce. What are you doing here, eh? And it's, I you know I kind of love it, even though it's cheesy. Um, there is just this moment where Troughton, you can just see. You can see how much an actor Troughton is, I guess. Oh, yeah. no. Um, and the other moment that I really think of is there's a moment where, and I'm skipping around here, um, near the very end, again, when he's trying to convince the same head of security, Bruce, what a guy, what a weird face he gets to make most of the time. Anyway, uh, he basically prompts Jamie and Victoria to explain that um, the Doctor wasn't here just to ruin Salamander. The Doctor came here to find out what was really going on, um, showing to the head of the chief of security or whatever, Bruce, that um, he, he can be trusted. And he says something, what is it? He, he pisses off Victoria, and she goes to smack him, and... Almost immediately, his body language changes, he throws up his arm, and his voice changes, and he's like, oh, Victoria, you wouldn't hurt your friend the doctor, and he falls off the chair, and it really is a moment of, in one moment, he is sitting strong like an immovable stone of a man, you know, like, evil dictator, and then the next, you see that funny side of Troughton's doctor, who right. is practically a little boy next to his companions and just wants them to be okay. And so, oh, don't hit me, Victoria. Yeah. Well, and um, going back to kind of what we were talking mm -hmm. about before, uh, or kind of last episode, you know, you also get the sense of, like, when uh, Giles Kent is saying, no, you have to kill Salamander mm -hmm. to, to the second doctor. You have to kill Salamander or else we will not save your friends, mm -hmm. you know? And you get this sense of, like, I just started laughing because, yeah. like, you don't threaten the doctor. I don't care which, well, you know. and it's a huge thing where the doctor is, he's very quiet in this episode. And he just, he, 
the doctor's very quiet in this episode in that he allows all these opportunities for other people to make themselves look bad. Right. Or for other people to make themselves look good. The doctor has this has this key of like actually um using people's evil against them in this episode and I really love that. Yeah. You know? And I I want to kind of reference back to this because one of my favorite lines is before any of this happens, the first scene we get is the the TARDIS landing on a beach, and the Doctor runs out to the water and basically starts stripping off down to his underoos, and he says, oh, go back into TARDIS and see if you can get buckets and spades, and Jamie says, is he going to dig for worms? And Victoria says, no, he wants us to play sandcastles. And Jamie's kind of pissed off. He's like, sandcastles? What does he think we are, a couple of children? And so I had two reactions to this. As somebody who just saw Fraser Hines and, um, what is her name? Deborah Watling. Deborah Watling, yep. Um, at a con, yes, you're children in this episode. Like, no offense to who they are now, but they are so adorable and young and bright-eyed in this episode. It is so cute. Well, but on the other hand, mm -hmm. we have... This image of they're just children playing sandcastles at the beginning. And then the entire rest is basically dictators playing sandcastles with the world. And that's that's a really that's a really good metaphor, I think, you know. Um, you know, definitely the, the childish doctor is at play here mm-hmm. to a certain degree, um, more so than, than in some others. Um, but you also see that to a degree the childishness that he you know, when he is in a more serious situation he is using it as a uh, way of disarming um, people who would try to harm him or those around him. Absolutely. Know? And I um, think that that is part of the second Doctor that people love and don't understand at the same time mm-hmm. is that... Well, you know I me. Mean, a little bit of childishness in a, in a, you know, in a hero kind of goes a long way with me. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I don't want... To watch, you know, grown men making sandcastles, you know, like, right? And but, I think what's interesting is, it's he's almost he's not the child; he's the one who is is talking to others and say, "Oh, let's play sandcastles," mm-hmm. and they're the ones who don't really want to do it and don't see the fun in it. So he gets to be this character that is almost parental. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, completely respectful and sees other people as equals. But so having the doctor be parental in this, I recognize your autonomy kind of way versus having these patriarchal dictator figures. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I think it's a really interesting contrast and in the fact that it's the same actor. Right. You know, I, I think it really does a lot. So, let's move on from mm-hmm. Doctor and yeah. Salamander. Um, I do want to kind of go through some characters, and we're, you know, mm-hmm. some 20 minutes in at this point. Um, mm-hmm. we, you talked a little bit about Jamie and Victoria. Mm-hmm. Um, what, do you, what do you think of Jamie in this episode specifically? Do you think he's um, kind of consistent with the way he's been written to date? Or do you think that he's uh, uh, a, little bit, a little bit off character, off model in this? Honestly, I think this is kind of, and I haven't seen much Jamie, 
I mean, and you've again, seen so the Dominators, part, you've seen the Moonbase. Part of this is me also referencing Fraser Hines. Right. It's just, this feels very natural to Jamie for me. Right. This kind of, um, yes, it's it's in a future and there's all this political stuff he doesn't know, but he's a Highlander at his roots. Right. And he goes to support the people. And, you know, he's clever and he can create diversions. Um, and he is extremely loyal to the Doctor. And um, even though, you know, he doesn't always agree with the Doctor. And I think the relationship with him and Victoria, I hadn't seen before, clearly. Um, and I think it's really nice. It's sweet that I don't think that they're really shown as romantic foils, but, like, they're almost like a brother and sister. They they really... There, there's definitely a kind of familial relationship at this point with yeah. um, Jamie and Victoria and the Doctor. You and, know, and you can tell a lot that... Of the, a lot of the kind of TARDIS teams historically mm-hmm. have been kind of familial. There's a little bit of, like, the Doctor's yeah. the father figure. Um, and we'll see that a lot when we get to, particularly the fifth Doctor, you see a lot of that. And I, I particularly like, there's... There's a scene or two where Jamie is making excuses to be around Victoria. So he gets hired into to Salamander's guard mm-hmm. and he's having lunch essentially in the kitchen um, with, with her and the chef, who, by the way, is awesome and hilarious. And we'll talk about him in a second. Yep, we will. Um, but there's a little bit of banter between the two of them then that... I don't I don't know what exactly it was about it but there's I think that Jamie and Victoria or rather the actors in this point do a really interesting job of balancing the fact that neither of their characters are from the t- same time period as each other or from the time period that they're in um but they don't seem stupid as a lot right. of times when you have people like what, what's the character you talk about? That Katarina. Katarina, who has to learn how to use a key? I think the big lesson they learned with Katarina was if you're going to bring a character from the past, you kind of have to, it kind of has to be a character who can roll with the punches, you know? Yeah. And, you know, having Jamie around and then Victoria around. Well, and what I love about, and let's just move on to Victoria, yeah? yeah or do you have anything yeah. else you want to say about I, Jamie? I was really just kind of asking you about what mm-hmm. you thought about Jamie. Um, one of the big complaints that people have about this episode, kind of one of the, the major mm-hmm. ones, um, it's just that um, Jamie and Victoria are written a little bit off model for themselves. Um, I don't really see it. I think Jamie is... is I think know. you have to take into consideration that, one, this is Doctor Who attempting a James Bond genre, right. clearly. And two, Jamie and Victoria spend half the episode trying to pretend to be other people. Right. So, trying to say, like, oh, this just feels off type for them, like... And they're not even in episode four. They were both on vacation that week. So. Yeah, so, it, it, I don't know. I think that, that that would be really hard for me to yeah. trust, but um, Victoria. This is the first time meeting yeah. Victoria. Um, we we were going to watch Tomb of the Cybermen. Mm-hmm. I decided not to do Tomb of the Cybermen right now. We will do it eventually. Um, I have my reasons for not really wanting to. I have my reasons. I it's There's not even a like one big reason. It's just sort of like everybody talks about Tomb of the Cybermen when they talk about Patrick Troughton. Oh, okay. Um, and I would rather watch this one. Yeah, well, and... It. Victoria, again, so I hadn't seen her before. Um, I knew that Victoria was Victorian. 
Yeah. It's about the extent and of it. And you got to see Deborah. And Watling I got to see Deborah Watling uh, at, at Chicago Tardis, who I knew how much she appreciated the role mm-hmm. and and hated the short skirts. <laughs> and hated the short skirts. I kind of get the feeling Deborah Watling is a little bit like more personally conservative in terms of you know. Um, she has said in many times she didn't really like the outfits she had to wear. As, I get you know. that. Um, and this is Ennis Lloyd. This is actually his last, the last one that he produced. Oh, okay. Um, he was producer, uh, after, you know, at the time of the War Games, he was already producer. He came on a couple episodes before that. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of his big things was, uh, lots of, uh, for the Dads characters. Oh, Jesus. Um, so we're going to get to that here in Our a minute. Are other For the Dads characters that also happen to be For the Moms? And for the queers and for that. Anyway. Um, so Victoria, I like her because she's put into some awkward positions. Again, mm. she's working in a kitchen and she clearly does not really know much about cooking. But mm. the the chef is like, all right, so tell me a dessert. And she thinks of one eventually. And yeah, I know. I always do that. Okay. It's like, and a spike on the sound. I, I just like that she is up for the challenge. And she may not be completely on top of it. She get, she fumbles a little bit. She gets a little, um, I think, overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. There, there's a situation where she uh, is wheeling food down the hall to, um, to Dinesh, who we'll Dinesh. talk about in some form. And Federin is trying to take the opportunity to poison Dinesh and basically gives her an excuse to run away. And she's just kind of like, uh, um... Uh, uh, all right, and there's something real about Victoria that right. I really like. That it doesn't make her seem weak; it just makes her seem like, all right, I she, I have she's to. She's never ahead. Yeah, yeah, I have to roll with this. I'm not entirely sure if I'm doing the right thing, but um, and I think both Jamie and her have a lot of moments like that in this episode, and I respect that. Mm-hmm. Um, because I don't want my companions or anybody in in my entertainment really to be. Perfect. It it doesn't right. make sense. Well, uh, I think Victoria has suffered historically with fandom, mm-hmm. um, just because up until 2013, when these two episodes, Love of Fear and The Enemy of the World, were mm-hmm. you know, rediscovered, the only complete story you could watch with her was Tomb of the Cybermen, and she doesn't do much in Tomb of the Cybermen. That's too bad. So it's sort of, um, you know, this is the first time I've really gotten to see, you know, her... Because I, I have skipped some of those reconstructions and going back and, and doing the audios and stuff now. But um, this is my first time really getting to see Victoria in a um, in a full-fledged role. And, and I think, A, I mean, I'm sorry, Deborah Watling is completely gorgeous. Oh my um, god, she is so precious. She is so precious. I, I'm not going to repeat the phrase that you said. <laughs> I, I, I had a, a very uh, non... Uh, Non PC uh, thing I said about um, the way she filled out her sweater. Uh, the word puppies I, was involved, and I wanted it to was hit you. Puppets. Puppets. Sweater puppets. Oh, Jesus, it's worse than I thought. Yes. Uh, anyway, I apologize to all of our uh, uh, listeners for even saying that word. But again, I I really liked that you had this bright eyed. Very feminine, very girly, Victorian character who is still smart and and can figure out a situation. And again, even though like she might get shaky at times, I, I just think 
honestly, there is a lot of depth to her character in I... this story, and um, well, I'm so when... happy for Deborah Watt. Uh, Watling, that this gets to be seen because that's one of the things that she said at the convention yeah. was like, you know, I, it's wonderful that there's so many fans who still want me at things even though they haven't seen anything I've done pretty right. much. Um, so having seen this story, I'm like, man, now I want to go talk to her about it because this is, I, I genuinely think she's a really good companion in this episode. She is, and uh, we're going to see more of her in a couple of weeks when we do the Web of Fear. So, yeah, cool. Um, you know, it, it'll be uh, really nice to get to uh, see more of her. And, uh, you know, I do admire the, the character. You know, mm-hmm. it wasn't just staring at her. Um, oh, her no, figure. I know. Um, you know, anyway. Um, moving but, on. Moving while on. While we're talking about figures. characters wearing figures. Um, Astrid Ferrier, played by Mary Peach, which is there a better name for an actress in that outfit ever? Um Astrid and the ass of Astrid. Um, <laughs> Astrid so, with two S's, as yeah, I think Ast- you referred to her at one point. Yeah. Um, the very first shot we get of her, I believe, is in standing that skin in that tight latex cat suit. suit, and she's like going down a ladder or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know. No, you, you definitely get a very clear wide shot of her ass. Yes. This is not the last time we're going to see ass shots in Doctor Who, by no. the way. Um, but. Having said that, she turns out to be totally badass. She does. She is a revolutionary. She gets she, to save a, people. She's a true she, believer in her cause, and she ends mm-hmm. up, you know, kind of working with Giles Kent, who turns out not to be the best guy, but, but some she, of the double-crossing yeah. and the, you know, stuff. And she... And is ultimately kind of the hero of the piece. Yeah, in, in absolutely. Ways, you know, she's the um, one who manufactures most of... The plans, the plans and, the and, and the, uh, um, she's the one kind of keeping things going forward. And she is very savvy. She has moments where she's clearly using her her looks against people and mm-hmm. using people's kind of not taking her seriously because she's pretty against them. Which in nineteen sixty what nineteen sixty eight like that feels. Late, late 67, early yeah. 68. Yeah, it feels very timely and appropriate to say, like, let's take this character and she can be gorgeous and she can be a well, femme fatale very, Bond character. It's but... very Avengers is what it yeah. is. Um, and, um, uh, but what I love... and I, The I actually... actress actually auditioned for the Avengers. Oh, that's cute. Yeah. Um, but I want to read this one quote because there's a moment where she's on, like, a phone, essentially... And the doctor says, good luck, Astrid. Jamie and Victoria will look after you. And Giles Kent says, Astrid, are you there? Ugh, she's gone. And I'm not surprised after that last remark. And the doctor says, well, I'm sorry. Um, and I think the doctor's genuine about it, but I love that we get a character who's like, who's taking care of who? Fuck you. And like hangs up on the doctor, <laughs> essentially. Yep. Um, and she's still... Very heroic and... I mean, the the idea, um, and this kind of goes back to Victoria as well, and we're going to have another character we're going to talk about here mm-hmm. in a second. Um, the idea that uh, you actually get three-dimensional, interesting female characters in Doctor Who, but that in order to get them, they have to basically be half-naked is another thing that's going to happen again and again. Yeah. Um, it is one of those things that by... that. The only way that women got to be on screen 
was to be eye candy for, you know, heterosexual men. And I, you know, I I will be honest. She is one heck of a piece of eye candy in this. She uh, may be a badass. There's a lot of eye candy in this. But she is, looks impeccable the whole time. Um, so there is that unrealistic standard a bit. And I mean, all of the men, when they're in fight scenes and stuff, they get dirty. She does not. No. Uh, her hair does not get mussed up, except for when she's out. When You can tell when it's filmed outside because the wind musses it a bit. But that's about it. Yeah. Um, so like, granted, I'm not going to say it lives up to contemporary standards, but having this character in this episode at this time and with all the political situation in the episode... I just, I loved her. I well, thought she was totally kick-ass. I think ultimately you have to judge it by the times. Yeah. And I think that uh, particularly when you look at, um, you know, modern Who mm-hmm. and some of the ways that it falls down mm-hmm. and a lot of the same ways mm-hmm. that, that this falls down. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, this is what was going on in 67, 68. Yeah. Um, very positive. Um, yeah. Anyway, uh, we're, we're kind of running short on time, so we're going to have to move forward here. Okay. So, Sorry. Um... Not at all. Uh, Giles Kent, played by Bill Kerr. Um, right. We talked a little bit about him. Um, it turns out that he's double-crossing. That The whole story is essentially him fighting for power of the world with Salamander. Like He's trying to double-cross Salamander. And Salamander mm-hmm. essentially put him in his place not because he was trying to be a revolutionary, but because he was uh, trying to take Salamander's power. And, um, you know, I let myself get lost sometimes in shows. Uh, and this was definitely one of those moments where I was just like, even though I knew the whole structure was relatively predictable, I was genuinely surprised when I found out the degree to which Giles Kent was a douchebag in this. Yeah. Um, and I was really happy in a lot of ways that they took it there. Like, the fact that he was not just trying to undermine Salamander, he basically became salamander well, by the end well he was allied with salamander yeah. at the beginning i mean he he and mm-hmm. salamander did this whole like putting people underground and controlling the volcanoes thing together mm-hmm. um and so you find out he has been keeping information mm-hmm. he is all it's going back to a little bit like mavic chen and the daleks you yeah know, um where they're they're both playing against each other and salamander is just the more savvy and more ruthless operator to some well degree. and i love that when you have the doctor in this and i I'm going to be honest, there are a few times that if I was in the doctor's position, I would have believed Kent more just because of his posturing. And it, I think it does a really good job in that way of saying, well, what did the doctor keep saying? That's all great and dandy, but I need proof. Mm-hmm. I need evidence. Yep. Um, and I mean, at first you're kind of like, man, like, get with the program, mm-hmm. dude. You know, like, obviously the salamander dude is up to no good. And then you eventually realize... I think the doctor realizes that Salamander is up to no good, mm-hmm. but also, you know, but also really suspects that Kent is a big part of it. And and as um, soon as Kent starts talking about Kent. murder, oh yeah, absolutely. He, you can see in Troughton's performance that he, he is playing people because yeah. he is trying to get everyone to expose the most truth to him, and he ends up basically teaming with the head of security, who is. The man just following orders. Well, let's talk about him. Donald Bruce. Bruce. by Colin Douglas. Oh, man. Um, who at first you think is this kind of like, um, um, you know, that kind of, I forget the guy from 1984, the, um, mm. 
the party member who ends up torturing Whitney Smith at the end. Sorry for spoiling 1984 for you. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the, you, you think he's, like, the head of the secret police. You think he's, like, the, the ultimate bad guy kind yeah. of guy. Um, and then he ends up being um, an honest government functionary who, honestly, you know, look at it in a realistic perspective, he knew a lot of shit was going on with Salamander. He didn't know the the extent of it, but he had to know that Salamander was like murdering people and shit. So well, his hands are not clean. No, but I, I I think you get an interesting commentary on like, well, what do you get in a security state? If somebody is a head of security in a security state, he believes the people who are dying or being killed are being are are put to death for good reason, mm-hmm. and he is okay with that. And it's clear that he is that kind of character. He's very stoic. There are a few times where they, like, force the man to make some kind of emotion, and his faces are kind of, like, confused pit bulls, and I love him. Uh, it's a great performance. It, it's a very great performance. Um, but I love that the doctor, the way that he wins his trust is by saying, here, take this gun. Do, like, well, I had an opportunity to kill you, and I didn't, you know. Ha- you have to ask yourself why. And... Eventually, Bruce is like, you know what, you're right. I really do. And I've been letting too much go. Um, so then you get the snivelly evil snivelly torture guy. Yeah, who I don't um, even know his name. Benick, Theodore oh, Benick. Milton Johns plays that character. Who could be written up. The, like the campest character in all of Doctor Who. Campus. There are so many. He, his visual presentation is so rich with many campy vi- stereotypes that you could talk about. Um, but he's got that thin, kind of pointy features, and also a V-neck showing some chest hair. Uh, he's just kind of smarmy. Yeah, um, no, I mean, very, very smart. He reminds me a little bit of, uh, if you remember Genesis of the Daleks, mm-hmm. the uh, Niter character, um, the guy with the kind of big square glasses oh, yeah. who mm-hmm. uh, was kind of the, the head of Davros' secret police. Yeah, yeah, he's um, definitely that kind of... You know, uh, really uh, sociopathic, uh, mm-hmm. takes pleasure in torturing people. Um, mm-hmm. a, a bad guy, I mean... So the, and I, I think the fact that we have... And again, we're talking about a ton of characters, but the fact that you have... There's a ton of characters in this. The foil of the security man who just follows orders, but at, at his heart wants to know that he's doing the right thing, versus the security man who's following orders and hopes that it includes torture. Right. Um. So you have those foils. Um. Well, and you can kind of look at that if you mm-hmm. want to kind of look at big picture. It's like, well, not just, you know, is it right or wrong if this kind of power exists, but in whose hands do we put this power? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think there are legitimate political questions about, like, you know, we're talking about, like, drones and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're talking about, um, you know, drones are not in and of themselves evil. Right. It's the uses to which we put them. Yeah. And I think that this, you know, it's kind of funny that we talk about that in the context of this kind of silly spy story, but I think mm-hmm. it is... I think those kinds of questions. Yeah, it touches on a lot of big philosophical questions. Um, And to kind of move along, I think one of the characters that does a great job of highlighting all that is Faria. Is that how they say her name? Faria, yeah. Yeah. Um, It looks like it should be said Faria. Um, Say her name again. The actress? Yeah. Carmen Monroe. Carmen Monroe. 
What do you think you're doing? We have orders to kill. Do you always obey orders? I'm sorry, Captain. Oh, never mind. Go and search for the others. I'm sorry, but you should have stopped. Did you get the others? Not yet, sir. Now, listen. It was you, Astrid Ferrier, Giles Kent, and another. Who was the other man? You know, Sue, so, so did I. I want to know now. Sir, you... Well... You can't threaten me now, medic. I can only die once. And someone's beaten you to it. Who was the other man? She's dead. Good. All right, and we are back. Uh, we ended up having to take a little break there. Uh, break for about a day and a half. It's uh, a little before midnight now. So we're uh, having our little forms of inebriation before bed. Uh, I'm having alcohol. I'll leave it at that. This is me audibly rolling my eyes at my husband. Audible roll of the eyes. I wish there was like a gif for that, but I mean it's a podcast. A gif for the podcast? For audible rolling. I mean, I don't know. Is there an audio gif? I guess it would just be a loop. Yeah. Anyways, hello. Hello again. Dear friends, yeah, and we're still since on, we have last met. Since we have last met, uh, just uh, threw in a little bit of audio from uh, Faria there. Um, most likely her death scene, which is pretty badass. There are so many things that she does that are badass. I agree. Um, but right, you know, right when I was leaving us off, my kind of segue into discussing her, um, was how she gets to be this great. Um, she gets to bring the big picture together about what the conflict that's going on between these political parties is. Um, because first we see her as kind of an employee of Salamander. I don't think we ever really think like, oh, look, she loves Salamander. Yeah, well, the first time you see her, she's just, I mean, honestly, I thought, oh, look, there's a black woman in Doctor Who. Yeah, first of all, it was like, very first... oh god, person of color on the screen. Warning, warning, pay attention. This is the very first black woman who is ever in Doctor Who. I know, it's um... a big deal. And she's, again, as with everyone in this episode, as we said, like, looks super cute, has the little well, perfect hair and the perfect... skirt, and, you know. Yes. But... I thought... Oh, she's going to be the person who's basically just the maid, quote-unquote. She has two say lines and, or, you know, whatever, yeah. you know. like, um, But totally not that. Actually, a really no. amazing character. And she becomes this whole touchstone, of, touchstone for understanding um, the common person, as it were. Since all of our other characters that we're introduced to are really involved in the politics they're involved in well except for one but we're going to get to him in a second oh yes oh yes 
Um, but then we have uh, Faria, who is very quickly makes it known that she is only in this position because she had no other choice. Right. And we don't really learn kind of what power, you know, Salamander has or no, what, what happened. I will um, say, what a fucking performance. Oh, yeah. There are moments where she uh, she has a moment where she tells off Jamie, essentially, because he's like, I don't know, you have it pretty good. You're being a taste tester in the royal what's-a-who's-it. Like, that can't be that bad. And really, Jamie's digging for evidence, so he knows he's being kind of a dick. Which is okay. You can be a dick as long as you're aware of your dickishness. Yeah, and I think, like, the fact that they end up saving the day, except not saving Faria. Uh, Faria. Faria. I'm gonna say it different every time. It doesn't really matter. Faria Khan. Uh, She actually does have a name, but not in, a last name, but not in the, uh, story, not in the episode. Oh. But the novel, the novelization gives her a name. Oh, what is it? Um, I didn't, I saw it and then didn't write it down. It's Negruib or something like that. Oh. That's interesting. I'll try to include it in the show notes. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so we, she comes and, um. It seems like a very Africanized name. Let's just put it that way. I'm sure. Um, but she gets to flesh out this whole dimension. She has a very strong personality. Mm -hmm. She has, I mean, like. She's totally fucking badass. She's I mean, totally badass. And, and, but also, like, a, a three-dimensional person. Yes. Like, you know. And um, a character that clearly has her own motives. And, like, there could be a Faria, like, spinoff show. She had enough going on with her personal history, the fact that she became this taste tester. And then, again, uh, spoiler, uh, on a how old episode... 1968, so 47 years? Yeah, spoiler on a 47, but it hasn't been out that long. Anyways. Well, it was... Anyway. So she dies. If you listening to this episode, you probably watched it in the middle yeah. of the world, or don't care about the spoilers. That's why... Yeah. That's why you're opinion. listening to us. Yeah. But so she dies trying to do the right thing and help I mean, support she, the cause. She dies doing the right thing. Opposing the, you know, the forces of evil in this story. I think it's a great, um, you know... And nobly so. I mean, she's she's a really that, cool character. It's sad that she has to die. Um, and it's sad yeah. that, like, oh, yeah, they kill the black character, which is, you know... But kinda... I will say her death did not feel like a tokenized death. It yeah. felt like, again, you knew that just about everybody had to die because that's the kind of character Salamander is. In the day and a half or so since we were recording last, mm -hmm. I've been thinking about it and mm -hmm. going, kind of going through the list, mm -hmm. um, the very short list of black characters in, in Doctor Who. This is probably the richest black character in Doctor Who until Mickey Smith, which I, is... I will say, um, I really, I mean, the only other black character that I have specifically noted as having a character and being interesting was the black astronaut in, in the 10th planet who the 10th planet. doesn't have a lot to do, but he's a cool guy. And, and he still has hair. a bit of a fleshed out cause you know, right. he, they kind of have extended conversation with him, but yes, this is the first character that like stands out as a character. And <clears throat> the fact that we don't have another character like that from a person of color for, well, I'm differentiating between person of color because they do have 
you know, uh, people like Chinese people. They have, mm -hmm. you know, there are some characters like that. But I mean, this is one of the richest characters of color in all. Yeah, of I was gonna Who. say like how um, many of the Asian characters are playing stereotypes. Well, uh, some of them were playing stereotypes. Some of them aren't. Some of them were positive, and some of them were negative. And we're going to we're going to get to John Pertwee eventually. And believe me, you know, um, I trust you. Um, kind of. Uh, and then there are some Asian stereotypes that are played by white actors. Um, so Even better. So there's that too. Love those. Um, but yeah, so I was really, I was super psyched about um, Faria. Yeah, no, she, she's and great. her interaction with all the other characters and when the other characters find out that she's died, like, everybody really takes it hard. Everybody takes it really hard when she dies, like, when they hear it about yeah. it. Um, and I think that that's important, too, that, yep. like, you see the characters all, like, say, like, <clears throat> you know. It's not just a meaningless death. No. You know, it's not, you know, and this is, uh, this is important. This is something I think we're going to talk about at mm. some other point, you know, kind of have a detailed conversation about, like, how to deal with character death, because, um... We do see a lot of, you know, people die in Doctor Who, and I, and mm -hmm. I think that um, sometimes they do it well and sometimes they don't. But I think that the idea that her death has consequences. Yes. Not just and for plot reasons, she's but She's not, like, reasons. you know, for fans of comics, she's not just getting shoved in a refrigerator. Yeah. Um, although I think that phrase is... Yeah, it's beyond the comic. Beyond it's, the comic, it's, yeah. it's a TV trope thing. Yeah. You know, so. um, it's not just killing off the person of color girl because she's the person of color girl. Like... She she has a a pretty awesome death scene. To kind of take a note from other like popular shows, like you know, we we have a fascination with uh, Downton Abbey, and I know you haven't really watched Downton Abbey. I have not seen a single moving frame of Downton Abbey. Um, but you've seen Gosford Park. I've seen some of Gosford Park. Anyways, I'm the familiar whole, with the it. whole upstairs downstairs, you know, dynamic. <sighs> You haven't started listening to Chimes of Midnight yet, have you? No. Did I just... Am I going to, like, kick myself in the butt for that? You are, yeah. Damn it. The fact that you see Faria moving between the kitchen, between the guards and Salamander, and the role that she plays is so unique. And in being able to fill out the story in a way that, like, I... Again, I always say it's the side characters that I miss in Contemporary Who... This kind of character that gets to represent a large swath of her community, mm -hmm. um, but also really play an interesting role in the story, and, you know, it, it was really cool to see that. And I cannot overstate that. No, no, she's a great character. Um, and was I, a total surprise. I did not expect she it. She immediately hits towards the top of my list of fa very favorite, you know, Secondary, tertiary characters. Oh in yeah, Doctor Who. Oh um, yeah, because she, and she has attitude. Like again, the the uh, the performances in this episode are pretty great. In this general, this is. I mean, you know, the more I think about it, the more I really enjoy. This. Yeah, it's um, fun. It's a fun episode. Well, it's fun, and there's a lot going on. Yeah, you know, it's six parts, but it doesn't feel like it's six parts. No. You know? Um. So anyway, we should kind of move on from. Faria. So, yeah, and there's there's. At least one more character that we I wanted to talk about. Yeah, I've got uh, 
three more major characters, and then we'll kind of start wrapping up here, I think. Okay, well, since we're in the kitchen... Well, Griffin. I'd like to talk about Griffin the chef. Um, who I looked up and apparently is a relatively well-known Australian... The actor is Reg Lai. Yeah, and he's a Australian uh, character actor. Um, and he's hilarious. Hilarious. So I have this whole, um, like, Doctor Who type trope theory going on at this point. And it's called the Sam Seely or Old Man Seely character from spearhead from space from spearhead from space the dude who kept talking about his his thunderballs and the dirty old box and the dirty old box that he had to go, go put back this, and the check thunderballs. out our old episode about yeah. the thunderballs and the dirty old box and you can hear me giggle a lot about thunderballs and the dirty old box um but since then i have found a particular favorite character of mine is the random old dude in the woods, or in this case, random old dude in the kitchen, who is purely there for comedic support, and just hates his life. Yeah, this guy is only in one episode. I think it's episode three. And is he really only in that one episode? He's so funny. Oh, God, I he mean, stands out to I me. I would be willing to bet they basically he was there for a day. Yeah. I'd be willing to bet he literally didn't know more than, like, four hours of work. And really, all he does is bitch. And it's, I don't know, I mean, maybe this is a British thing, like, because he, he definitely feels like a Monty Python-esque, like, the Sam Seeley character trope in general feels kind of like the, and then there'll be some old codger in the woods, because, you know... Well, I wonder if this is, I mean, because you got to think that, you know, this is made by the BBC and, you know, most of the people mm-hmm. working on it are kind of, I think there's a class issue here. Yeah. Um, when you're starting to talk about, like, you know, where, you know, oh, these are these are the kind of people that live in the woods and, you know, like. And work in the kitchen. And work and in the kitchen. These are, these are not the people that do the important work of making television the way that. They're the do. dirty rural. I mean, it's probably like southern jokes in the U.S., I would almost guess. Again, just wait till we get to Pertwee. Oh, God. Um, anyway, just saying, I love the character because he is, again, also instantly relatable. And he has this really... Because, um, to back up a step, um, Victoria is sent to work with him in the kitchen. Yeah. And he sees Victoria is as just... As part of their infiltrating the Salamander's camp or whatever, you know. Yeah, and he just sees Victoria, um... As a burden, immediately. Because, yeah. to be honest, to him she is. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, he's like, do you cook? And she's like, nah. And he's like, oh, so I have to be school, too? And he's just bitching the whole time. But then he has, and this is my favorite line that he says. He says, well, sit down and write out the menu. First course, interrupted by a bomb explosion. Second course, affected by earthquakes. Third course, ruined by interference in the kitchen. I'm going out for a walk. It'll probably rain. And he exits. And what I love, too, is when he's talking about the interference in the kitchen, he's literally talking about Victoria having walked in and the other people that are still standing in the kitchen. Right. So he's, like, literally saying, this shit happened, this shit happened, y'all are fucking here, I'm taking a walk. 
and it's probably going to rain on me. And I was just like, you know, you go, dude. You go. The, the put-upon uh, put uh, working-class guy. I mean, and again, so much of these kinds of moments, you know, mm-hmm. because this is not a required bit of this story, but no. having the way that the ordinary person interacts with these kind of large political events mm-hmm. kind of shows a little bit of the world, and it gives you some of the world-building that you need well, in order to kind of buy the more crazy spy elements of it and like and you have it grounds it, you, know? you have then a spectrum of people represented you have people on both sides of the political spectrum you have the people who are the weaker pawns in the middle you have um Faria and the chef um who kind of represent more common people and the world building in this episode it's it's just so much part of the plot. It's really seamlessly put in, but each character feels like they're there for a reason. Um, and each character is pretty well performed, I think. And for the most part, we're gonna get to that here. And, yeah. You know, yeah. There, yeah. There, there's a there's a particular group. Yeah. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. Um, anyway. But yeah. So um, moving on, I've, I've got kind of. One yeah. more big one I'd, I'd like to just talk about, and this might be a, um, and that is, uh, Federin. Oh, uh, Federin. Played by David, uh, Nettenheim, I think. Nettenheim? Or Netheim, something Netheim, like that. Netheim, something yeah. like that. Heim is in there. Yeah. And then, an Nettenheim. Is that kind of, is that time of night, huh? I guess so. Yeah. Anyway, um... So what you seem like you have something to say about Federin. Like let let's hear it. It's a you know, it's a very stock role and it's a very broad performance. Let's just put it that way. I mean to be fair, Federin gets to play like the sniveling kind of weak-minded guy who can't decide what side he wants to be on and then dies. He does a little bit of gurning when he dies. Just a little bit of that like you know, and then falls over. I I think as the It's also hard for me not to think, you know, the way he looks with the glasses and the facial hair and the kind of balding head. It's hard for me not to think like, oh, he's the Jew. Oh, you're saying you think it's I don't think that it's an overt stereotype, but I think he definitely recommend represents. I mean, if we're talking about like Socio-political kind of intrigue here. I think there's a degree to which he represents this sort of like the intellectual class that doesn't have the the kind the, of the, Jewish you know, academic weak and then you limp. Yeah, and not necessarily yeah. Jewish, but I think you know it kind of. No, plays I know what you're same, saying. You know? Yeah, I I could see that now. Like, I mean, I think that there is a lot covered by each political figure. Sure. Um, I I mean... I mean, ultimately, even with all these characters, we're only seeing a handful, you know, and we're not... I'm not trying to make this into a, like, Doctor Who is anti-Semitic or anything like that. I'm no. just trying to... But, I mean, like, Federin is a wet blanket. He, he He's just kind of a, uh. And I, I think that's 
I, like, I don't, I don't necessarily know that I feel like it was underperformed or underwritten as much as, like, that's what the character is. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty straightforward character. I mean, yeah. it's kind of like I was going through the list of characters. Like, he, could he have sniveled more? Could he? I, I think what was missing for me, and I mean, it's okay that it's missing, was the relationship between Federer and Dinesh. Yeah. Or Danish. Danish, yeah. Danish. Um, I think because we don't really see the well-beloved Danish being well-beloved. Um, and so we don't necessarily see, like, how Federin and Danish are before Federin is supposed to then kill Danish. So mm-hmm. I think if we had gotten to see a range from him of, like, Here's how I interact with Dennis when we're friends. Here's how I interact with Dennis when we're friends, but I think I have to kill him. Um, well, what did you think of uh, Dennis while we're talking about him? He is, by the way, played by George Pravda. Pravda. It sounds Russian, I don't know. <laughs> he is actually, his real name is Yuri Pravda. Um, George was his acting name. Yeah. He is from, what is now the Czech Republic? He was oh. from Prague. Oh, he's from Praha. Uh, Shane and I went to Prague going on five years ago now. What, what, Prague? And uh, so we have a, you know, I just wanted to mention Yeah, that. we have a special place in our hearts for the Czech Republic. And for the... And for, for Prague in Praha particular. Itself, yeah. So what do you think of good old Yiri? Yeah. Um... He seemed like the well-beloved politician. And and I think, like, that's kind of what I mean. Like, we don't get to see much character dynamic from him, except for we get to see him sneaking out to talk to um, Blondie, whose name I'm blanking on right now. Oh, uh, Astrid. Astrid, thank you, yes. (laughs) Astrid and her ass, how could I forget? Um, But so we get to see him kind of in, in different situations with different kind of people um and in different kinds of pressure even um but i mean like he's meant to be a pretty affable guy he seems like a pretty affable guy it's kind of got that central european bill clinton thing going exactly on, you know? i kind of get the feeling that uh you know if things had gone the things that kept going on you know maybe he would have put the moves on victoria or something you know i no. No. You're wrong. Astrid. You're right. Astrid. Yeah, definitely. Victoria's like, a little young. Victoria's way too young. Uh, but yeah, so he almost gets poisoned. Yeah, well, uh, he almost gets poisoned and then gets shot in the back. Yeah. So, you know, and, uh, you know, he gets that cool line about, uh, what am I supposed to do? Like, mm-hmm. you know, eat the steak with a fork or with a spoon, mm-hmm. you know? Um... You know, good performance, some great lines. Uh, David Whitaker wrote this. He's been writing for Doctor Who since the very beginning, and uh, he was script editor for a while. Oh, okay. And, I mean, um, it's a good up. I like again. I think. I mean, this is really one where the strength is the script and the production. I think. You mm-hmm. know? Um And I think the performance is pretty much. Yeah, this fires on all cylinders. Yeah. Um, um. I read a little bit in in our mm-hmm. break, you know, and. Uh, Phil Sandifer's writing about this. He actually uh, calls this the best episode 
of Doctor Who to date at the time it was made. Um, he can he considers it that highlight. It's also important to know he was writing that piece mm -hmm. when this was a missing episode, hmm. so without even having the footage to go by, hmm. um, he said that. Now I don't I don't necessarily agree with that. Um, there are too many great episodes. Otherwise, um, I think it does what it does do probably the best. True. At least of what I've seen is it does the most of hitting all of the things that the audience could possibly want from Doctor Who. It's got like the sci-fi, it's... it's got the action, it's got the political, it's got... And I mean, like, it is very James Bondy or bond -ish I feel like it's very modern. I feel like, I mean, yeah. that's kind of where I end up landing mm -hmm. on this, is mm -hmm. that, you know, this is, a, this is really a story. You could sit, I mean non-Doctor Who fans down in front of this. Yeah. Even people who aren't, like, used to the pacing so much. of, of No, like, I... This would be a really easy episode for a lot of people to just sit down and watch. And if, if somebody wanted to say, I want to watch a Troughton episode, like, I could definitely see this being a first episode. The, this would be, this is, you know... A story. It, it is, like, an atypical story. True, but I but, still think, like, you get a lot of those essentially Doctor Who things in it. Um, yeah. Again, Troughton's, like, quick turns yeah. between the two characters, and all, all of that, I think, is just... Yeah, now I'm just getting very complimentary about yeah. the episode. Well, and Go that's where we're gonna get... <laughs> We're gonna go off that train just a little bit here. What row? Um, three characters I want to talk about to to kind of end with here. Yeah. Um, the people in the underground. Oh yeah. Uh, Swan, Colin, and Mary. I think are the only three that actually. Oh, get names. Mary, Mary, Mary. Shall we start with Mary? Mary, quite contrary. How Who can't girl? fucking act? I would complain about her acting, but this is the only thing she ever did. I looked it up. Because I was like, who is this poor, petrified girl who seems terrified of the camera? Um, and on the offhand chance that anybody watches the Real Housewives, like, looks like the blonde... I'm sure we have an enormous Kyle overlap sister. Yeah, between like, people listening to a... Gina might know. Uh, <laughs> this is me. <laughs> Shout out to Gina, if you're listening. I don't know. That's the only person that came to mind that I'm like, I don't, she, I, Gina, no offense if you don't watch Real Housewives. <laughs> she, do you really think she's listening to this episode? About I don't it? know. Okay. Yeah. It's live. We literally have so few listeners, we can call it individual listeners on our, on our podcast. That is a friend of ours, though. It's yeah. different. Yeah. Anyway, we should talking about Doctor Who. Yes. Um, it's very late. It is a little late. The the Aryan They're all blonde army. and I guess blue eyed is black and white, but you know. Um so I kinda get the idea this is like hippie commune researchers, like they're geologists, you know. Um, well and the idea that when approached by a leader who says Oh, there's been a nuclear war and it's there's radiation, I'm going to save this group and take you underground and have you do research. 
Like, these have to be some pretty gullible folk. Yeah, and yet, I mean, and again, if we're talking about, you know, what these people represent. Yeah. I mean, is this like the scientific establishment or the, I mean, based on the way they're dressed, it's really easy to say hippies, you know. Well, and it's like this mix between hippie and scrubs. Right. Um... Not what I would wear in a lab underground. No. Um, But I think you do have an interesting dynamic where uh, Mary is just like the the very stereotypical, oh, don't do anything. Oh, don't get hurt. She has, I'm sorry, the girl role. Yeah, she has the girl role. Um, We're wrapping up soon, don't worry. And then what's the dude's name that's not Swan? There's a... Colin. Colin. So Colin gets to be an interesting character, I think, in theory. Well, I mean, he's just so loud. So I Colin mean, is in the midst of losing his fucking mind because he's been underground for five years. Sure. I think that that is a really interesting character story to tell. But not when he's at the end of the rope and he's like, Gotta get out! Gotta get out! Oh, God! Blech! You know, and I mean, it, it seems like they basically just hired like the this. This just seems like models that yeah. they hired. You guys look really good at being scared. You yeah. look, oh my gosh, you are a scared bunny right now. Go, you're in. You're hired. This is the one place where the production kind of falls down for me. Where you know, there's well, and I mean, they're meant to be very childlike. I think in a way, like maybe it's like the time machine, H.G. Wells, like Morlocks and Eloy, like they're like they're the Eloy, you know. I don't know. Um, anyway, and then Swan, who turns on a dime, trusts Salamander, finds like a newspaper article that implies that Salamander is lying. I just, I mean, for me, the big cool thing is scene, like five but... years. Five years they've been underground. And nobody seems to have questioned him until now. Right. That is the only underdeveloped part of this story. I think. I mean... I mean, beyond the, like, premise. Like, you have to just... Right, 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 right. I mean, like, you you can't do everything. Um, But I think this is definitely the one part where you're like, wait a second. But then it's just like, well, whatever. This is how things had to happen for the episode. Yeah, and it feels kind of crammed in as well. Mm -hmm. You know, it feels like this sort of thing that... I don't know. I, I'm really interested if... I really hope that the DVD production team puts out a special edition DVD of this and has a really good making of documentary. Well, because, I mean... Because I'd really like to see kind of what the people that made it... Thought they were supposed to be. Or just talking about the genesis mm-hmm. of this. Because I think it's interesting because it is rediscovered now. Yeah. And so we get to watch it. And, and there hasn't there, been that it, much commentary. There just on. hasn't been that much people kind of looking into the details of it. Yeah. As much as some of these other episodes where we, I mean, we literally know the exact days that whole stretches of Doctor Who were shot. In what order it was shot. Right. You know? No. Um, the big question for me with this whole group is, 
what we're supposed to kind of consider them. Are we supposed to consider them the kind of, like, the flock that just follows whoever, which is what they kind of feel like? Or are we supposed to be thinking of, like, the scientists that invented the atom bomb, but were all given parts and didn't know what they were putting the whole together? You know, like, they didn't get to see the big picture, that kind of dynamic. That doesn't really describe the people that made the uh, Manhattan Project, but... You know what I mean, though. <laughs> like, not the Manhattan Project, but that kind of science fiction situation. Sure. In the writing, I'm not so sure that they're not supposed to be the scientists who just don't know what they're doing. Sure. Um, but definitely in the portances, these feel like sheeple. Yeah, no, no, definitely. I mean, you know, that that maybe the, you know, people in the ivory tower, people who just trust blindly the authority of the, you know, leader or... Yeah. I, mean, I don't know. It, it's It's a very... For an, strange yeah. sideline. For an episode that has such clear metaphoric lines to political commentary, they do kind of stand out as like, I'm not sure what Doctor Who is specifically trying to say here. Um, but I guess they're, they're, they're interesting enough. It's interesting. I'm looking forward to watching it again. Mm-hmm. And kind of paying more attention to them and, and sort of um, that yeah. sort of deal. I think for me, you know, part of it is, and I'm, you know, I'm really not very critical of, like, a bad actor in general mm-hmm. or a bad performance, you know, unless it takes me out of the story. And this isn't that bad, but when the rest of the story is as good as it is and the rest of the characters are so well drawn... Yeah, no, when you get to the underground out. lab and all of a sudden it's like... I don't know, like, the world is ending, the sky is falling, you know. It's it's, it's almost, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, maybe these guys are supposed to represent, like, other Doctor Who stories? Because they kind of act like characters from, from, like, lesser Who stories? I don't know. That's too meta. That's too meta. But this is a very meta episode. I don't think it's that meta. I don't know. Right. Is David Whitaker still alive? Let's, let's, let's tweet him. Go ahead. Yeah. You do that. He's probably dead. I think he's dead. Um, Classic who, where everyone is most likely dead. Yeah. Uh, Barry Letts still alive. He directed this. We could ask him. Hey, Barry, what's up? Yeah. Because he's listening to us right now. I hope so. If Barry Letts is listening to this right now, I will... Uh, I don't know. I will do something amazing. We'll figure it out. He'll just crap your pants. I would just be happy. No. Anyway. Um... So, on that note... <laughs> I think I cropped my pants. <laughs> yeah. Oops. Uh, wrapping up. Uh, final thoughts on Enemy of the World? The Enemy of the World? The Enemy of the World. The Enemy, enemy of the World, comma, the... Audible eye roll. Audible eye roll. Uh, you know, I just... I really... I enjoyed it. And I enjoyed it more than I thought I was going to. Just based off of, like... From the very beginning saying, oh, this is an episode where Patrick Troughton plays two different roles. Like, that alone is, like, usually the sign of a cheesy episode. Right. Um, but I think that, you know, the serious actor in Troughton comes out in this, and I think that that kind of puts everybody else on their game. Sure. And I'm not saying that he's necessarily the one who, like, led the way, but after hearing Fraser Hines and Deborah Watling talk about him and um, Wendy Padbury, Wendy Padbury for that matter, it kind of feels like that's how everyone saw him Yeah. Um, anyway. 
so, and he takes up so much of the episode because he is playing two, the two main parts. He clearly relishes getting to do something different. And, and he, he clearly likes showing his range here. Yes. And I think when you, ha- like, I always say, like, it's it's nice when you find out that the actors got along behind the scenes because it feels like you can see it. Um, this is definitely an episode that it felt like, man, it looks like they're having fun doing this because it just is going very well. Yep. Um, there's, there's a good rhythm to the episode. Um, and especially considering that I'm not a huge fan of older episodes pacing, like it, it really didn't bother me at all. Yeah. Um, so I, I really don't have anything negative to say about it no i mean i agree it's, it's this pretty is, fun um, episode you could again you could set an, a new who fan in front of this mm-hmm. they'd probably get a lot out of it it's very enjoyable i think there's a lot we could say about it i think there's a lot we have said about it um man we went on hopefully this edits together okay i mean you know we've yeah. talked for almost 40 minutes just now um, so we, we've, we've spent a long time on this, but, uh, hopefully it edits down fairly well, and, uh, but I, I think it's a great episode, and if you haven't, I mean, I, I bought this DVD on Amazon for, like, $13, and it's definitely worth the 13 bucks. Totally um, fun. If you're a, if you're even just a New Who fan, and haven't seen this, yeah. it's I mean, worth a blind buy. And we said a few times, like, I could see this being a Matt Smith episode, and, like, it'd be a good Matt Smith episode. It'd be a fantastic Not one of the shitty ones. <laughs> but, like, in, in the terms of, like, there are, there are lots of roles that you could relate. And you're right. It feels very modern. And part of that is there are some really kick-ass chicks in it, mm-hmm. um, which <laughs> modern. Um, maybe not contemporary, but modern. There's a difference, kids. Especially after looking, watching episodes recently, like, you know, with Mavic Chen. Having an episode like this, I think, is really reaffirming and like, okay, D- Doctor Who has its ups and downs, but the ups are always worth the downs. Sure. Well, and, you know, not that the the dog special plan was bad. No. But it was dark. Um, it was dark and, that, that's very and dark kind of thing. racist. Um, um, so to go from that to, like, having pretty kick-ass chicks, even though they're, like, you know, in skin tight short clothing and whatever, but... Get used to that. Yeah. Whatever. If they liked the short skirts, it's okay, but apparently Deborah Watling didn't... Yeah. Sad. Um, now I'm just rambling. You just are getting me on a ramble. So... Yeah, it's time to wrap up here. It's... it's Go team us! We liked this episode. Alright, you can find all of our episodes at... Or do you want? Hey, you tell people where they can find our stuff. You can find us on iTunes by searching "Oi Spaceman Podcast: A Doctor Who Love Story," or at oispaceman.libsyn.com. That is L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. You can find Daniel at Daniel E Harper on Twitter, as well as on Tumblr, and you can find Shayna, that's me, at Inkyosa. On both Twitter and Tumblr, that is I-N-K-Y-O-S-A. And we're also on Facebook, if I didn't say that. You didn't. And... What if you want to email us? Can they do that? Podcast at gmail.com, Daniel. Thank you for asking. Wow. 
And, like, if people were to email us, would we, like, read their emails on the air, maybe? Not only would we read them, we would personally respond to them. And, you know, maybe say something really nice. Or not. Or not. You know, we would, we are dancing monkeys at this point on a podcast, so, like, dancing monkeys is not really much of a comparison for a podcast, because it's like, I can't see monkeys or dancing. Bye, folks! Next week, we're going to be talking about Chimes of Midnight. That's right, we're tipping our toes into Big Finish. Which means I gotta listen to all of it. It it does, yes. And uh, we're likely going to have a very special guest for that one. So, uh, look forward to that. Until next week, the balcony is closed. You can find all our episodes on iTunes or at oispaceman.libsyn.com. That's oispaceman.libsyn.com. You can also find us on Facebook. Follow Shayna on Twitter or Tumblr at Inkyosa, that's I-N-K-Y-O-S-A, or Daniel at Daniel E. Harper at either location.